Good morning. I'm talking to Dr. Claude A. Clegg III, who is the author of The Black President, Hope and Fury in the Age of Obama. Dr. Clegg, how are you this morning? I'm great. I hope that you are too. Yeah, I'm doing good. Um, how much power does a U.S. president have? Do people, do pe does he have less or more power than people usually assume? Much less um, in some ways. I think that people tend to confuse the branches and the power that the three branches have. That is, I, I imagine that uh, many people think that the president has more power when it comes to legislation and passing bills and getting policy done than they actually do. You know, certainly they can suggest things to the Congress uh, and their allies or their party members in the Congress. Uh, but it's the Congress that actually writes the bills. It's the Congress that actually has to vote. The president, of course, can uh, have an indirect influence by threatening vetoes and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, um, the, the president can submit a budget, which they do every year. And it's a wish list of things they'd like to see uh, done. Uh, but other than that, uh, it's at, at best a sort of indirect pressure that they can apply in regard to policy. They have much more influence when it comes to foreign affairs. Uh, some would say too much influence uh, in terms of waging war, sending troops abroad. Um, we've had since Vietnam, uh, you know, a number of undeclared wars. Uh, the Vietnam War, there was no, you know, official declaration of war against North Vietnam. Uh, the same was the case with the Iraq War. You know, you have, you know, some authorization, quote, quote unquote, from Congress, but no declaration of war. And it's usually the president taking the lead. Uh, and it's open-ended in ways that should make us all nervous um, in regard to the kind of war powers that they exercise. So I, I think that uh, people can see that, the war powers, and they can see how presidents can direct that and in making treaties, well, not necessarily treaties, but agreements and pacts and things like that with foreign powers. Uh, so presidents have a good amount of power there. Uh, and again, some would say too much. But in regard to policy and legislation and so forth, uh, again, at best, they can place indirect pressure on the Congress with the veto threat and so forth. Yeah. And I think that's sort of part of the story that emerges in your, in your book about Obama, um, where there was a lot of frustration voiced from, from some places. And Obama's presidency was characterized by being hamstrung in a lot of ways, by not having uh, a lot of power to, to legislate. Um, a president is also a figurehead in America. Um, what, what kind of a figurehead was President Obama? Yeah, I, I think that being that his presidency was um, historic. Uh, it was a historic presidency in terms of him being the first African-American person of African descent, person of color to sit in that office. And it was two terms. Uh, so he was elected with uh, a pretty convincing margin in both the electoral college vote and the popular vote in 2008 and in 2012 by margins that we just don't see nowadays. Um, uh, comfortable margins, especially in 2008. Uh, I think that as a sort of symbol, an American symbol um, in the Oval Office, I think he's unique because of that. He's the first person who is not a white guy who was in that, in that office. And again, he's there for eight years. So there's a whole generation of American young folks who came of age um, and there was a black first family. 
so I think that that symbolism, I don't think we've, we've fully comprehended that. I think uh, maybe when some of the folks who were born between 2008 and 2000, or came of age between 2008 and 2016, 2017, once they start telling their stories and once they start giving their impressions uh, and we have a better sense of what they thought about uh, that period of time, we'll, we'll have a sense about the importance. Uh, but I, I think that um, we haven't fully digested the importance of having a black president for eight years and how that has shaped a whole generation, the political consciousness, the political culture uh, of a whole generation of Americans. Uh, I think that also his presidency, and you can say this about a lot of different presidencies as well, is pivotal in showing it's, it's a metaphor for what's going on in the larger political culture. Uh, it's a metaphor for what's going on in regard to dem demographic shifts in this country and backlash against those demographic shifts. It's a metaphor how our window into bipartisanship or the lack thereof or the sort of hyper partisanship that we're seeing in the country. It's a uh, metaphor or for racism. Yeah, I think it's a metaphor for race and, and how uh, the country has become more polarized. And again, back to the demographic shifts, uh, the sort of the, the browning of America, the fact that we're becoming a much more diverse country. And then there is a very clear backlash. The whole presidency of Donald Trump is largely uh, a backlash against Obama. He's, he's, he's self-consciously the anti-Obama. And about half the people in this country were ready for that. Uh, in 2016 uh, and, and uh, voted for Trump. So I think uh, as a symbol, he's a complicated symbol that is Obama uh, in that office. Yeah. Read, reading the book, or in my case, listening to the book was um, an intense experience because it's, it's the story very much of my political awakening. Um, I, I grew up in a very comfortable suburban white area and politics was like never really on my mind, you know, in those years, I, you know, um, I was like, this is my high school, college years, um, and uh, mostly college, let's say. And, um, you know, I, it was it was easy, like not having to worry about politics so much because because I he was obviously and, and uh, so, such a uh, from my perspective, he felt like such a competent president. That's what he felt like, you know, and I, I, did, I wouldn't worry about tax policy. I wasn't worried about you know, even politics of race so much at the time. And then we sort of, you know, moved into the backlash, you know, where I saw um, the emergence of, you know, right-wing populist candidates, Trump, uh, but also other, other candidates as well, not just Trump, um, towards the end of, you know, uh, of, of his second term. And uh, all, all of a sudden there was this deep sense of, you know, like what's possible in politics and, and why politics, you know, maybe matters um, to some extent. And some of my memories, you know, of, of the Obama presidency that, you know, stuck with me the most are, are his, uh, responses to, to tragedies. So like the, the Sandy Hook shooting, um, for example, and the Charleston church shooting, and um, just the, the relief of having someone with, with so much eloquence, someone in that position with so much eloquence and, and, and grace and um, intelligence, um, which is something which I can no longer take for granted, you know? Yeah, the... <laughs> And I think you, you put, you know, you, you've set that up in a very eloquent way in regard to your own experiences and how Obama sort of figures in in your own coming of age politically. I, I think that uh, one thing the book tries to do is put Obama into his historical context. So, it, of course, it's his life and his presidency, but it's also 
it's bookended by the Bush administration and, and uh, Obama is possible because of a George Bush administration that sort of crashes and burns towards the end in 2008 with where well, we're in two wars by then and neither one of them is going well. Uh, the economy uh, slips into what we now call the Great Recession uh, by the end of the Bush years. And um, Bush himself, I don't think he's going to go down uh, as one of the great presidents for all kinds of reasons. And then those, you know, the economic situation that he's the steward of at the end of his term and also the wars uh, that we're in uh, are part of the reason that that he's not going to, I think, be remembered very well in the rankings of presidents. Then on the other side, the other bookend is, of course, Trump, uh, who is a one term president. And you have to really, you know, do, do some things wrong to get limited to one term, you know, and that's, that's not very common in the post-war era. Those presidents who run for a second term tend to get a second term uh, in, in, in the White House. Uh, so in that regard, Obama is even, you know, he's even more of a striking figure in American political culture because he's book, bookended by these two guys who I don't think are going to be remembered very fondly when it comes to uh, historians reflecting back on their presidencies. Mm -hmm. And that Obama's presidency, I think you're right, it was relatively scandal free. This was a competent, serious, cere cerebral uh, guy in the office uh, who took the office seriously. He, he filled the office of the presidency. Uh, and uh, nothing, you know, there's, there are certainly some ups and downs. Ups, ups and downs. Uh, I think the uh, he inherited the recession and it, it was a slow grinding recovery out of it. Um, and then there's, you know, there's some incomplete um, uh, policy things uh, that uh, remain incomplete during his time in office. But in regard to his presence in the office, in regard to his management of the office, taking seriously the office and so forth. Um, and then looking at those bookends, Bush and, and Trump, um, I, I think that, yeah, this is a guy who made you know, political oratory you know, and eloquence popular again. This is a guy who read books. This is a guy who wrote books, um, you know, a college professor. This, this is a guy um, who, again, uh, there, there were those who were itching to impeach him uh, on the other side, um, and they simply did not have the fodder to, to credibly impeach this guy, which they would have loved to have done. So I, I think that's one of the takeaways that this was a serious, smart, um, empathetic, I'd say, right. uh, a decent man in, uh, in this office uh, for eight years under some incredible stresses. Uh, and expectations that were way too high uh, for him or anybody else in that office. Yeah, yeah, I was going to also uh, point out that the empathy um, component there. Uh, there's there's a lot to talk about. I have uh, a, a lot of things I want to touch upon. Um, certainly, the the backlash uh, to to Obama is a big question uh, that I, I hope we get a chance to to touch upon a little bit. And it also affects me personally because Lord knows I have. Trump supporters in my family, um, but before we do, before we before we get to that question, just to, to focus on on the character of Obama some more and and his his biography some more, um, he was characterized by by an optimism, uh, this you know indomitable optimism about America. Uh, there's you know a part of your book where he, he's talking, um, I think in the aftermath of the uh, what was the name Shelby uh, versus uh, Holder, oh. Shelby versus Holder. 
uh, and, and he's talking to civil rights leaders and, and he talks about how the previous generations had it worse. Um, at the same time, you know, reading the book is an intense experience for me and I assume for a lot of people because it seems to also plot out the grinding to almost a halt of our democratic system. Um, so how do we think about Obama's optimism? Um, is that optimism uh, accurate, like a helpful representation of, of the, our current reality or is it a little bit out of touch in some ways? I, I think the whole promise Amakai of the Obama presidency is the optimism. It's the hope and change, right? It's, it's uh, the yes, we can uh, mantra. I think, uh, and, and the whole promise is that we're going to get beyond as much as we can race. We're not, he was not under no impression um, that we're going to be in this post-racial nirvana. Um, uh, and he, he actually said that you know, his election did not represent that. But I do think that he thought that we would be able to get to a post-partisan place. That is in the midst of this economic freefall catastrophe, Republicans and Democrats would put aside their ideological policy differences and they pull together to pull this country out of the worst economic um, uh, cataclysm that we've had since the 1940s and 1930s with the Great Depression. So I did think that he thought that there were this one, that he could be a transformative president and that he could bring the sides together, Republicans and Democrats, and that true patriots, you know, he assumed that Republicans were patriots and as well as his side, the Democrats. True patriots would put aside their, their bickering and their, their ideological commitments and their policy commitments and they'd pull together, uh, you know, pull from the center and pull the country out of this. Uh, he was not right in that. Uh, I, I think that he came to realize, some would say too late, that the other side, the Republicans, were not interested. Uh, in pulling with him, uh, and that what Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, said that we want to make this guy a one-term president, uh, was actually the Republican playbook. That is, we, we were going to oppose him on everything, and even even oppose him on you know the like you said, the government almost grinds to a halt. So they're opposing him on raising the debt ceiling and paying the bills. You know, just the basic functioning of government. But the optimism is a lingering optimism. I think that that is something that we see in presidents past. Um, you know, if you can think back to, to Lincoln and he's at Gettysburg after that horrific few days there uh, in, in terms of the Battle of Gettysburg, he goes there and gives that address, which I think is probably right at the top of presidential oratory. And he says that there's gonna be this new awakening of freedom and that uh, government for the people, by the people, of the people shall not perish from this earth. Um, you know, and he's, he, would live, he would live barely to the end of this war before he got assassinated himself, but the optimism, uh, the same with uh, FDR uh, in the midst of the Great, uh, or the great Depression, you know, um, nothing to fear, but fear itself. Uh, Reagan um, on the other side, a Republican, um, Optimism. Uh, he, he's an actor, and he's good at you know he's good at what he does as actor. But I think that that serves him well as a as a president in the sort of optimism he projects in the struggle against the Soviet Union and the Cold War and so forth. Uh, and to a certain extent, maybe Clinton too. But I, I think um, the truly memorable great presidents are optimistic people. 
um, they're, the, they're the country's number one cheerleader and they take that seriously. Even in the midst of crisis and the darkest hours and so forth, you have to have a, a head of state uh, or a chief executive who tries to elicit the best in people and to bring out the best in their countrymen and countrywomen. And Obama stood, understood that. He studied presidents past. Uh, so I think the optimism is, is baked in the cake for him, but also I think he was very self-consciously aware that this office, this chief executive office has to be one that's pointing the way forward. People are gonna look to him you know, for inspiration and they're gonna blame him uh, when things go sideways. Yeah, yeah. Even before the presidency of Trump, um, a lot of people on both sides of the political aisle, I think express cynicism about politics. This idea that you know it's it's a show in some ways, um, or that politicians are are corrupt, um, and you know are, are power hungry. Uh, they don't they don't really make our lives better. Um, how do you think about that cynicism? Where where does that come from, and and what is maybe the response to that kind of cynicism? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think that some cynicism is indeed justifiable easily. Um, I think a lot of folks on both sides, uh, all sides of the political spectrum, whether they're Republicans or Democrats or Libertarians or Green Party folks or whoever, this uh, would, I think most would concede there's way too much money in our politi politics, unaccounted for dark money, uh, is people can just dump money into buy candidates and you don't know who's buying the candidate um, uh, nowadays and, and who the candidate is beholden to you. So uh, people are cynical about that, about that. You know, if, you know, Corporation A or rich individual B can buy a candidate, what, what difference does my vote make, you know, when the candidate is already beholden to these interests that are, aren't being accounted for? I think the way the system operates makes people cynical uh, as well, uh, whether it's the use and abuse of the filibuster in the Senate uh, whether it's gerrymandering, how district lines get drawn uh, so that politicians are more or less picking their voters as opposed to voters picking their elected leaders. Uh, that makes people cynical. I think the nature of the two-party system too, it's either or. You know, you're voting for these guys over here on the left or the center left, or you're voting for these guys here on the, on the right. Um, and that's it. You know, you can go and vote for the libertarians if you want to. If you are, you want to vote for the green people, well, then, you know, in some instances that might shift an election in a particular state, but more or less shift election to the Republican or the Democratic candidate. You don't have a green candidate or the Libertarians or the Constitutional Party candidate winning or anything like that. So it's either or. And I think that that gives makes people cynical. That is, you know, you have two choices and there's a lot of people those choices are not ideal. That is, they might agree with some of what this side is saying, but don't agree with a lot of what they're saying. And they agree with even less on this side. So which one do you pick? You pick the devil that you know or these folks? You know, so I, I think that some people vote by not voting. They vote by staying home. I don't like either party. Neither one of them speaks to me. And I just have these two flavors uh, and nothing in between. Uh, so I, I think that's going on in regard to the cynicism. And I, I think that... Um, People don't really, well, people don't tend to recognize good management, good administration. 
but they sure do recognize bad management and they were criticized and point out bad management and bad leadership. And I think it's the case that um, um, in the 21st century, I think people are noticing the things that are broken about the system, whether it's the electoral college and how the, the guy who didn't win the popular vote can become president. And I don't think a lot of people knew that until it happened in 2000 and 2016. Um, I, I think, again, the money uh, in the system, the gerrymandered districts, um, the, the fact that you just have these two parties to choose between. Um, and as you were saying in regard to your own experience, uh, I don't think people notice just the everyday operation of politics until something terrible happens. Then, then they notice. Uh, then you have a Tea Party or on the Occupy Wall Street or a Trump coming out of nowhere and becoming president. People notice when, when things aren't, aren't well. Um, uh, but, but otherwise, I don't know if people are paying attention. And when they pay attention, they often don't like what they're seeing in regard to American politics up to date. Yeah. And, and one of my memories of, of President Obama um, is, is him you know, speaking to large audiences, often audiences of young people, and, and trying to really motivate them and saying that, you know, your cynicism is valid, but you still have to participate. You know um, that there are there are all these problems like that we just mentioned and talked about, but uh, if you don't participate, it's worse, um, and it gets worse. And I think that's a really important, uh, a really important point. Um, one of the things I learned from your book that was that was very interesting to me, uh, and regarding his uh, the biography of President Obama, is is the way in which his growing up without a father affected his messaging from the White House. And the way he he spoke about race in a way that often uh, that sometimes yeah, upset a lot of people. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I, the missing father um, figure is a through line with his life, uh, Obama's. Uh, and um, as you know, he was, he was born in Hawaii. Uh, his, his parents were students at the University of Hawaii, uh, and they married. It was a brief, unhappy marriage, and. It, broke up very quickly. His father went on to Harvard, left the family behind in, in the Pacific, and he eventually goes back to Kenya and moves around, and he, he dies in a car, car accident in the 80s. So he, he, he met his father once at age 10. His father came back to Hawaii to visit during a Christmas holiday, and that was it. He never, you know, he never saw the man again in life. Uh, even when he, his father, he learned of his father's death, he said he was kind of not moved by it. He didn't know the man. Uh, his father uh, was a, an abstract thing. The idea of father was an abstraction to him. He did not know his, his father. And he carries that. Uh, he carries it in different ways, though. I, I think that on the one hand, um, he felt connected to the father, not just because they shared the same name, uh, but I think some of the father's ambition uh, rubs off on the sun. And I think the mother's ambition, she, she sort of travels around the Pacific Ocean and, 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 and various sorts of research sites. She gets a PhD in anthropology and so forth. So they have this wanderlust, this, 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 this restlessness, Obama would call it chronic restlessness that, that he has. And I think he inherits, it, inherits that from his father and from his mother. But the father's a missing figure. And is, is, you know, he, he's raised by his maternal grandparents in Hawaii and his grandfather kind of steps into that role um, 
in on the mainland when he comes to the states uh he's he he after he goes to school on the in the northeast he settles in chicago he has a spiritual mentor in his 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 church uh jeremiah wright who would be problematic for a number of reasons later, but he's kind of a spiritual father figure. Obama is really good at surrounding himself with uh, advisors and mentors. He, he's not one uh, who shies away from asking advice from people. So he, he tries to fill that void, but it's never really filled. One of the things he promises himself when he becomes a father is that he's gonna try to figure out what that means to be a father, a good father and a good husband and, and a, and a a good steward of the family and so forth. Uh, although his own father, and to a certain degree, his own mother did not really serve as really good models of parenting, uh, but he was going to try to figure this out. Uh, and, he, and I think in a very serious way, he's going to try to figure it out. And also, he uh, is not averse to giving parental advice to others, including Black men. And it gets into a, a bit of you know, some, some rough patches with uh, some critics uh, who, who think he's going a bit too far in taking Black men to task about being fathers or about how they dress or how they present themselves in public and so forth. And people were saying that, you know, he's he's scolding Black people. He's trying, he's pulling out the dirty laundry. Or so blaming forth. the victim. He's blaming, he's victim blaming and so forth. And Obama's retort was that, hey, I live this. I, I know what it means not to have a father in the house. Uh, I grew up like that, and if anyone, you know, has the right to say how important it is for guys who have children to be fathers and to be present, I, as a person who experienced not having a father president, have the right to do that. And even with the biggest megaphone in the world, uh, as president of the United States, I have every right to say that in the, in the megaphone, that it's important for people, for fathers to take their, their job seriously and for African-American fathers to take their job seriously. There are those who read that as a sort of messaging to white constituents and saying more or less, you know, this is how some read it. Okay, uh, Obama is saying to white people, oh, you know, I will take to task my own group and I will publicly scold them and take them to task. So obviously, I'm not going to come in and have this black agenda and, you know, get too cozy with black people. Look, I'm taking them to task publicly, you know, and so forth on these cultural issues. Um, I don't think that that's an incorrect reading of what was going on, but I, I, I see both sides of it. I think that uh, Obama was saying some things about fatherhood that were true. That is, uh, in regard to responsibility, in regard to raising families and so forth, and, and, and in regard to his own experience, not having that, uh, being raised by his maternal, maternal grandparents. So he had a right to say, you know, this is how I was affected by not having a father in my household. And this is what I'm going to do to be a good father. And this is what others, you know, I would suggest do to be good fathers. I think he has every right to say that, but also see the other side. Okay, uh, you're taking to task black people, black men in public in this in this kind of carping, scolding way uh, that you're not taking into task other folks. You're not right. taking to task, you know, white people who get addicted to opioids and looking at that as a moral failing. Right. Uh, and you're not taking to task, you know, other groups for for moral failings in the way that you're you're doing 
in regard to black men and fatherhood. So I, I can see both sides of the argument there, but he never stopped doing it. You know, he throughout his presidency, he would still come back to this theme of responsible fatherhood. Yeah, it's a trope which is often weaponized for very like nefarious, poisonous means. It's a way of uh, distracting from real, you know, uh, policy uh, options that could really better the lives of millions of people. And you just say, oh, you know, we don't need policy changes that will make people's lives better because it's their fault, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, and a, a major theme of the book, a thread that, that carries, you know, throughout um, that's fascinating is the way in which the president, the former president was so hamstrung when it comes to talking about race. Uh, you talk about in his first term, uh, somewhere in my notes, I have this written down, but it'll take, I, I don't have it right in front of me, so I'm going to just do it from memory. Uh, he, he said like such an innocuous comment um, uh, in his first term about, uh, I, I think a man who, who was killed by police in his own house, if I remember correctly, uh, or some, some incident like that. And his poll numbers among whites fell below 50% and never recovered. Um, and his statement was along the lines of like, we, we all know that, you know, black people have, you know, uh, run-ins with police, you know, that are, that are often dangerous kind of a thing. Um, and then, and sort of that may be like haunting his presidency in a way, uh, sort of teaching him about what he can and can't say. And then yeah, finally in the second term, maybe sort of uh, being more open and being more forthcoming. Um, and, and famously, uh, what we all remember is uh, what he said about, you know, Trayvon Martin. Um, if, if I had a son, he would look like uh, Trayvon. Um, so can you speak to that about about how Obama tried tried and maybe failed at times to talk uh, about race? Yes, great, great question. It is one of the through lines of the book, and I think one of the through lines, uh, the core themes of his his public life uh, and life as a public official. So I, Obama's the he learned early uh, that um, he wanted to be a politician that just happens to be African American as opposed to an African American politician. Uh, and there, you know, there's a, a distinction between the two that's not just semantic. So he always wanted to make himself palatable to a wider constituency beyond African-Americans, although he understood that when he ran for office, for example, his first run for office was as a state senator in Illinois representing Chicago, uh, that you have to have a core constituency of black voters, but that, that if you were going to go beyond that, that would not be sufficient. So when he runs for the Illinois Senate, and, or the U.S. Senate, uh, or U.S. Senator from Illinois in 2004, Illinois is primarily a white state. It's not enough to get Black people in Chicago to vote for you. You have to go, you know, to Springfield and all these other places and, 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 and build a coalition of voters, um, which he understood, you know, that most of those voters who would be voting for him uh, and voting in that election would be white voters. So he's, he sold himself as um, more or less a liberal Democrat politician who just happens to also be a black guy, uh, as opposed to a black politician. And, you know, um, my, my core constituency and my agenda is going to be focused on this particular demographic and so forth. Uh, so as he runs for the Illinois Senate uh, or the U.S. Senate, uh, representing Illinois in 2004, and then he runs for president, that's that's his that's his stance, that is his political crouch, so to speak. Um, and that means you don't deal with race unless you absolutely have to in, in regard to public discourse. Now, if the goal is to appeal to a wide cross-section of the 
the electorate, then, and, and again, if the point is to make people feel optimistic about the future, you know, the quickest way to put a damper on all of that is to get bogged down in conversations about race and racial inequalities and so forth. He would, if he had to, he would address those things, but he addressed them very quickly and set them aside as quickly as he could. So if he had to address some instance involving race, he would he would take it head on and then as, as quickly as he could put it aside and then address these sort of universalist issues that voters might be concerned about, such as education or healthcare and, and so forth. And his presidency is more or less like that too. Um, if, if he has, if he's forced to deal with race, for example, in the primaries in 2008 before he becomes president, it comes to pass or it comes, becomes known that his his uh, minister, Jeremiah Wright, who was a minister of a Chicago church, uh, had said uh, some so pretty intemperate things about the country uh, in some of his sermons uh, in regard to American foreign policy, racism, racism has been endemic to the country and racial prejudice, prejudice and so forth. And um, his opponents in the primaries uh, would want to pin that on him, uh, this minister and his, his screeds, his, his uh, pronouncements. And Obama had to give a, you know, he decided to hit tackle that straight on uh, and to give a speech in Philadelphia in March of 2008, in which he talks about race, he talks about this minister and so forth, but it's a, it's a sort of fence straddling talk that is, okay, I wanna talk to the concerns of white voters and, and, and I wanna talk to the concerns and the conditions of black voters and I'm more or less gonna, you know, sit here in the middle in the middle and, and do that try to bring people together so that, and then as soon as it's possible I don't want, I want to put this whole conversation aside and get back to issues that are not coded with race uh, his presidency for the most part is like that as well uh, you mentioned you were mentioning the case of Henry Lewis Gates uh, who is a Harvard professor uh, who was arrested at his home he got locked out of his home in the, and and uh, he climbed into a window or something or forced the door. That's what they did. Forced the door and someone, and one of his neighbors who apparently did not know he lived there, I don't know how that happened, or couldn't see him well or something, called the police and the police come, he does a perp walk and gets arrested and so forth. And Obama says that, he says the police acted stupidly. And that one word, that one sentence, you know, he had up to that point, this was in 2009, summer of 2009, up to that point, he had enjoyed uh, majority support from the white electorate. Uh, he's a new president. Uh, he came in very popular. After that phrase, that is the, it was Cambridge, Massachusetts, the Cambridge Police Department acted stupidly. He lost several points permanently among whites polled in every poll after that. Um, no, he no longer had a majority of white support in, in every poll. And he learned the lesson, you know, it was a very stark lesson to learn that every word mattered. You don't, you know, you can't say that kind of thing about law enforcement, you know, even though policing and criminal justice in this country is problematic in all kinds of ways. In some communities, police have very high reputations uh, and you just can't say that sort of thing. So, and he's very careful in the future in regard to how he characterizes police law enforcement, uh, how he characterizes their actions, how he talks about race um, and, and so forth. Um, and he, he carries that about to the end of his presidency. In his second term, he's a bit more um, 
candid and talking about systemic racism and discrimination and, and talking about the kinds of things he'd like to see done. Uh, of course, by the second term, he's already lost the House and then they, they lose the Senate, the Democrats in the midterms of 2014. So there's really nothing that he can do but use the bully pulpit to talk about these things. It's not going to be any policy behind it because the Republicans are not, we're not playing, playing ball with him. Uh, but uh, he does talk about race in more, I think, forthcoming, candid ways by the last quarter of his presidency. And some of that is because he had to. There were, you know, there were the, the Black Lives Matter movement comes during his watch and uh, there are protests. Uh, you mentioned Trayvon Martin. There was uh, other protests about the killing of uh, unarmed African-American men and women by policemen and vigilantes and, and so forth. So he was forced uh, to talk more about race and policing and criminal justice. But I, at the same time, I think that he wanted to. Uh, and, and also, you know, to be fair about it, he, he felt it safer to do as well in the last you know, months of his, years and months of his administration as well. Yeah, I just want to give um, like a personal reflection on on that speech um, that he gave uh, about race. We're talking about uh, uh, regarding Jeremiah Wright um, and his affiliation with that church. Um, I, th I think uh, people call it the, a more perfect union speech if uh, people want to Google it. Um, that that had a, a really strong impression on me um, when I first read it. Or, you know, maybe in the same year, shortly after uh, that, it, that it that he delivered the, the remarks, because. Um, I, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish world, and in my experience, uh, there's, there's a lot of beauty in that religious community, that religious life, and there's a lot of diversity, and there's all sorts of different people that participate, and there's also a lot of like bad things, which get said. You know, bad is a very judgmental term. I don't think the things that Jeremiah Wright said criticizing America um, are necessarily so off base, but I'm saying from my perspective, from what I hear within my own religious world, I hear things that strike me as, as being really problematic, you know? And, and then you're, you're forced to, to grapple with this where this is sort of part of your identity. It's part of, you know, it's, it's a home base in a lot of ways. Uh, it includes a big tent. It includes a lot of different types of people. And, you know, to what extent is that a reflection of you, you know? Um, so that, that speech uh, really resonated with me on, on that level as well, um, the, religious, the religious valence of it. Um, Moving on a little bit to adjacent, adjacent topics here. Um, Obama obviously received a lot of criticism um, from, all, from all across from many different places. Um, some of the most interesting forms that criticism took were, were criticisms from the left. Um, a person who I tr really respect tremendously, I, I feel like I, I learned a lot from, um, but I think, I think you're, you're fairly critical of in the book uh, is Dr. Cornell West. Uh, who was a intense critic of Obama. Does, does he sort of represent a kind of really strong criticism from the left that Obama's received? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I think if you look at the subset of critics on the left who found Obama problematic in some way or another, they are a vocal minority of people on the left. Uh, and, and especially if you look at the black left, African-Americans on the left. Uh, for the duration of President Obama's 
presidency, the, the entire eight years, if you look at Gallup polls, and Gallup is, is pretty reputable as a polling site in regard to public opinion. Obama, only in two weeks of their polling in eight years, dipped below 80% as far as African-Americans are concerned and the job approval that they accorded to President Obama. Just two, two weeks in eight years, however many weeks that is, that's hundreds of weeks. Um, just two times that he fall below 80% among African-Americans in regard to approval. Uh, if you just listen to some of the critics on the left, you'd think that every week he was, you know, he was dropping the ball, dropping the ball and so forth. So I think that some of the critiques coming from this, again, I think small subset of folks um, are uh, cogent critiques. I think when they criticize uh, U.S. policy in regard to what it does for the poor or say that there was not enough done for all the people who lost their homes um, in the midst of this economic crisis, or that Obama and the Justice, Justice Department should have gone after all the crooks and rogues who sold all those bad mortgages to people. Uh, and many of those people should have been locked up for having done so instead of bailed out to tune of trillions of dollars uh, to these, these banks and, and corporations and so forth. Or the critiques of the use of drones, unarmed uh, uh, aircraft used for offensive purposes uh, in different parts of the world. And, and people criticize Obama for using drones and so forth. I, I think those are legitimate critiques uh, of the president. I think that there are some things that he simply could not do without the Congress, having a willing Congress. For example, he had a jobs bill that he wanted to pass and he just did not have the votes in Congress to do that. Uh, he wanted to do more criminal justice reform, just didn't have the votes to do that. He wanted to do more on the environment and tax policy and you know, there's a list on and on and on. And on. Uh, so I think to criticize him for things that the, he wanted to do but weren't done because he did not have a willing partner in Congress, I, I don't think that that's a genuine criticism. But I do think uh, to, to take him to task for his own uh, policy prescriptions or policy preferences and to say uh, that he's not talking about the poor enough uh, or, or that he's, he's not, you know, he's not uh, transparent enough in the way he's conducting foreign policy, especially this drone policy and military policy abroad and so forth. I think those are fair criticisms. Now, I think that some on the, uh, on the left, this sort of vocal black left in particular, I, I think that some of the language was not productive. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think that some of it was personal stuff, and I think that some, you know, some of that rhetoric, rhetoric was problematic uh, and just counterproductive. You're the president, you know, the president of the United States, he's already busy enough. Uh, do you need to be saying these personal things about him and, and these, these, these colorful remarks? He's not going to pay attention to that, and it's going to be counterproductive. You know, you, you'll be even more marginalized because, um, uh, the president of the United States doesn't have time for it. And it's against the sort of general trend of support for the president. Most people in the Democratic Party, if you want to call that the left, uh, are, and certainly most people among African-Americans are supportive of this president and not blaming him for where the country is during this, this time period. Uh, so 
the people on the margins who are sort of throwing these bombs at the president saying he's not doing enough of this. He's not. No, they're already on the fringes of the left and fringes of the Democratic Party and so forth. They're even more on the fringe uh, when they don't concede the kind of environment that Obama's in and that that environment is not conducive to him getting a lot done because of the gridlock in Congress and because of the sort of opposition, the sort of relentless opposition from conservatives and Republicans in Congress to everything that he wanted to, to get accomplished. So um, I, again, um, I, I think that some of his critics on the left have good arguments to make about the country not doing enough for the most vulnerable, for poor folks, people who lost their, their homes, there's not enough done in regard to urban policy and so forth. But I think that has to be tempered by the limits as we were talking about at the very beginning of our conversation, the, the limits of executive power. Uh, to get things done. He has the power of the executive order, uh, but even that's a temporary fleeting thing and that can be overturned by the Congress anytime it wants to uh, pass a bill that, that overturns an executive order. And then the next president coming in the door can overturn about every other executive order. So that's a temporary thing at best, executive order. It's not, it's not real power like uh, a bill passing through the Congress. Um, so, so yeah, I, I'm sympathetic on, on, on the one hand with those on the left who had critiques. Sometimes they're very good critiques. I'm less sympathetic in regard to their misjudging his actual power or them taking him to task for not having a black agenda. Uh, I think that that was a very um, odd expectation given that most of the folks who voted for him 2008 and 2012 were not black. Most of the Democratic coalition is not black. And to expect for that coalition to be behind Obama while he's privileging a subset of that coalition with targeted policies that help a subset of that coalition. I think it's probably a bridge too far. White voters tend to vote their self-interest like every other voter does. And to expect them to be in Obama's corner as he's targeting black voters or Hispanic voters uh, or low-income voters with, with particular policies while ignoring this larger coalition of folks who voted for you uh, is the path to losing uh, the next election. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something which is um, on my mind. And if, if this doesn't go over, if it, if it comes out sounding stupid, it's a chance I'll cut it out. Um, but I'm just I'm reminded of um, a scene in a, a movie uh, by uh, Jordan Peele called called Get Out, and in the in the movie, you know, you have the black kid visiting his um, his white fiance's or white girlfriend's family in like the white suburban area. And um, it, the, the horror movie is that from from his uh, experience, he's a protagonist. He's a character that we're following. Uh, he's he's being walked into a, a horrifying uh, world, a world of terror, a world that's gonna you know uh, of cruelty towards him. Um, and, and, uh, when he meets the father, he like gives this gesture of, you know, uh, you know, how, how much I totally understand you and, and, you know, how much, uh, you're one of us. He says, I would have voted for Obama for a third term, you know, um, and sort of the sense being that for, for, for white people, uh, he, Obama was a very non-threatening president, you know, um, and, and there's like this tendency maybe to, to sort of wear that on your sleeve as, you know, I'm so, I'm so progressive. Um, I don't know, just a scene that, that I don't fully understand maybe, but, but sticks with me. <laughs> yeah. First of all, great movie. Uh, <laughs> I, I really like Get Out. I thought that's a good, good, it was strange in the best, best possible way strange can be. It's, a, it's strange in a very sort of alluring way, the, the things he's trying to tackle uh, in the movie. Um, 
I think that Obama only works for a lot of people if they can connect or they can think they, they're connecting. I think that angry black man, he understands does not work, is not a good look. Uh, and that, you know, there are many times during his presidency that people, you know, I heard people say, he ought to really get angry about that. He ought to speak his mind. He ought to tell these, these Republicans A, B, and C. And I just knew that that wasn't gonna happen. Uh, I knew that he didn't have that sort of latitude to, you know, like a Trump, you know, Trump can you know, he say whatever he wants, literally say whatever he wants to say, and he's not going to lose the core of his support. Uh, you know, he can go after his his uh, opponents on gender and sexuality and race and immigration status. And he just say anything. Obama just, he doesn't have that sort of latitude. Most politicians haven't. Uh, and certainly this black guy is not gonna have the kind of latitude that a white guy in the office has. He has to show himself because we have, I think in the national consciousness, uh, there's an ideal about what a black guy is and, and, and what a black man will and will not do in a certain situation. And uh, to make him a safe choice, he has to show himself to be non-threatening very competent, uh, a serious person in that position, well-trained or even over-trained for the position. And then, you know, perhaps he's safe then. You know, Obama understood that. I mean, he, he, he knew that script and I think he followed that script pretty, pretty well. Uh, so I, I think that um, he works because he, he's following that script of the sort of safe guy, the, the competent guy, the guy you know, with the, high, the Ivy League, you know, degrees. Um, you know, he's a U.S. senator and so forth. He, he goes, he's vetted. He goes through the ranks, you know, of, of, he's not just any black guy off the streets and any black guy off the streets can't become president. You know, this guy was, a, you know, he was a Columbia grad, Harvard JD, and then he's a, a Illinois state senator and then he's a U.S. senator. And then finally, maybe we'll, we'll look at him as a presidential candidate. And he still has to comport himself in a certain kind of way, even though he has all these credentials and things, he writes books and everything, lovely family, nuclear family, but he still has to, you know, comport himself in a certain sort of way that's not like the stereotypical black guy in the national consciousness of what the stereotypical black guy is. And again, I think he's masterful at sort of walking that line at the same time with these sort of cultural gestures towards African-Americans. I don't know if you remember, um, he's at the Apollo and, and, and he did these, you know, did a few refrains from uh, uh, an Al Green song. And um, at a, a funeral in 2015 uh, of people who were killed in, in a church in Charleston, he did a eulogy and he starts, breaks out an amazing grace, you know? So he's still pretty good at sort of this signifying of black culture African-American culture, uh, but that's not threatening. Amazing Grace is not threatening. Al Green is not threatening, right? Yeah. You know, so uh, I think he's he's really good at sort of walking the tightrope. And I have a, a chapter in the book called Man on a Tightrope. And, it, it, you know, and that's a through line for the whole book. He, uh, he's really good at sort of walking this, this high wire between sides and, you know, uh, keeping his balance for the most part. Uh, while doing so, while able to sort of signify to different groups that uh, I'm one of you or understand your culture, or, but in, in ways that are not, not threatening, you know, uh, and he's really good with doing that to African-Americans. He's still smoothing with 
you know, sports figures and, and, and so forth, uh, basketball players. He's a lifelong fan of basketball. So, but none of that's threatening or anything in regard to race um, as, he's, as he's sort of navigating things. And I think that his mastery of, uh, of that and, you know, the sort of signifying to young people uh, and coalition building among young people uh, and he's a fairly, fairly, he was a fairly young person to be in the presidency too. So people can connect to him in that way as young, you know, young kids in the house. So uh, I I think that he's re he really masters that look and that sort of portrayal of himself in a way that a lot of white voters say, hey, you know, this guy's one of us. It was nuclear family. He's raising small kids. He went to Ivy League schools. He was a U.S. senator. His wife is a lawyer. You know, that's that's apple pie, you know. So as long as he, you know, acts in a certain way, we, we he can't afford to be angry black guy. She can't afford to be angry black woman. You know, so, again, there's still a litmus test that's going on in regard to is this guy going to snap? Is he going to show us who he really is, you know, at some point? Uh, you know, and, and then, you know, the, things will fall apart from before and then and people will say, oh, I told you so. This is, he's, he's just like the rest of them. Uh, so I think he's very conscious that his performance is just that a performance and that there are a lot of eyes on him. And um, he, he, he has to show himself as a fairly conventional American president um, who just happens to be a black guy too, as opposed to an African-American president who just happens to be in the Oval Office. Moving on a little bit in time, um, were you surprised by the election of Donald Trump? Absolutely. Just like 99.99% of people in the world, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't see it coming. Uh, I, I think that you know, it's one of the great upsets in presidential elections, any elections in the history of this country. Um, I think that in hindsight, and that's the one thing, the one of the things that we historians, we, we uh, very much depend on, that is reading, we read the past with the hindsight of the present. Um, I can see how it happened. Uh, I think that many of us observers of politics weren't reading what was right in front of us uh, very well. Um, I think that goes with the, I think the Obama administration, they thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. I think the Clinton people thought that she was going to win. I think the average person in this country thought that she was going to win. A lot of people probably set out the election because they didn't think their vote mattered because she was going to win. Um, so I, I think that there was a, enough writing on the wall. Uh, I think the, the Clinton brand was uh, very tarnished. Um, I think people had a lot of Clinton fatigue going into 2016, whether it's people who remember the Clinton presidency of the 1990s and how sort of exhausting it was over time with the back and forth between uh, the president and uh, his Republican enemies. Uh, and then she runs in 2008, uh, and then she's running again in 2000, 2016, and she was Secretary of State for Obama. I think people, there was a certain amount of Clinton fatigue that people had not fully understood by 2016. And I think that people did not really understand how canny a politician Trump was turned out to be, how he had put his finger right on the pulse of about half of the electorate and spoken a language that was easy to understand, direct, 
He didn't sugarcoat anything. It was nothing subtle. Um, it was a sound bites. It was build a wall. It was a Muslim band. It was, you know, it was, it was, he said out loud what a lot of people were thinking. And it, it, if there's a political genius to him, that's it. That, that is, he understood at that particular moment, you could put the dog whistle aside and you could actually take out the bullhorn. And you could say out loud what more or less Republicans were saying in more subtle ways and not so subtle ways about immigration. You know, so the nativism that he taps into uh, in regard to the southern border uh, and Mexican migration, immigration and so forth, that was already in the Republican Party. That was built in. Uh, the Islamophobia was already there. Um, this is the suspicion of expertise and the elites and science and so forth. That was already swirling in the Republican Party. It wasn't, it wasn't something that just came out during the pandemic that there was a good chunk of Americans who are suspicious of science or suspicious of experts or suspicious of elites and so forth. That was already there. He, he crystallizes this into an easy to understand, easy to, to digest, message that's being peddled by a showman, uh, and someone say a, a demagogue, and um, people say, yeah, this, he's saying what I thought, you know, this, you know, maybe this wall will fix our immigration, maybe it's not amnesty, maybe it's not immigration policy, we just need a big wall, right, that'll fix it, so it's simple solutions to complicated problems that he's offering people, um, and He's offering change. These people can, you know, people say this election is a change election. This election might not. Be. It was a change election. You know, you had eight years of Obama. Uh, Americans, their attention span for presidents tend not to go beyond eight years, and you know, sometimes it doesn't go beyond four years. They're tired of you after four years. Uh, but I, I think it was an election that a lot of people were not necessarily sold that Obama should get a third term through Hillary Clinton. Uh, that something was, you know, new, and you know, and now maybe this guy, you know, who has never been a politician, and of course he sold himself as never been a, never being a politician, and he's something new, and I know business, and I run businesses, and so forth. I can fix the economy. I alone can do it. It also speaks to an authoritarian strand in American politics, uh, which has always been there. Uh, if you know, if we go back a few hundred years, the country starts with kings, right? It's colonies. Um, they're they're ruled by a king, and there was a there was a question about you know whether George Washington should be a king. And I think if he had declared himself King George Washington the first, there'd been a lot of people who'd been on board with that uh, until you know something really bad happened, and they said, oh well, he's just like the other King George. Or, you know, how other presidents have comported themselves, especially during war times and the kinds of powers that Abraham Lincoln and some others have had in wartime. So we've always had that sort of strongman, authoritarian strand in American history. Um, you know, the imperial presidency that comes out of Vietnam and the way it's conducted by Johnson and Nixon and so forth, uh, sort of, I'm going to conduct foreign policy, I'm going to wage war, I'm not going to let Congress and the American people know what I'm doing, I'm going to have these bloated budgets and everything. So that sort of kingly um, presidency is not strange to this country. And it's one way of understanding our current moment, that is it. It may seem surprising to some who would, would say, hey, you know, how, how's a Trump possible? 
you know, this guy's breaking all the rules, you know, is this guy who's trying to shake down foreign leaders and get favors out of them. This guy is weaponizing the, the Justice Department and telling his, his attorney general to go after this person, arrest this person, and lock this person up. How, you know, how is that possible? Uh, but it speaks to a larger, I think, phenomena in not only American history, but also our, our contemporary world in which people are not seeing the kinds of results coming out of a democratic system and, and fast enough results to solve problems. And they are susceptible to this idea of, okay, do away with the press, do away with Congress, do away with the courts and see what this guy, you know, and it's almost always a guy, uh, see what this guy can get done, you know, who's promising all these things, um, see what he can get done. Uh, and I think that even though Trump is a former president, you know, if he were to run for office again, he would be the candidate for the Republican Party. And he may even have another, a, a decent chance of becoming the next president. So that lingers, this hunger for the strong man, uh, the guy who's going to come in and just do his thing, the guy who's going to bend the rules and break the rules and, and, and do it in the name of making us great again. Right. Do it in the name of simple solutions to complicated problems. So back, you know, there's a long winded way to get at your original question. Uh, did I see Trump coming? No, I didn't. I thought this was Hillary Clinton's. I thought she had it in the bag and so forth. Uh, now, in hindsight, do I see how he was possible? I do. Uh, I, I do see how he was possible. And, and that was one of the big shocks for also a lot of people um, is the, the fact that all the things that the people like me, people on the left uh, saw as, as like Trump's weaknesses, uh, for example, is like obvious lies, like just mm -hmm. obvious, obvious lying about the littlest, most petty things, the size of his inauguration crowd, just uh, obscene things, his conspiracy theories. Uh, people like me, people on the left see it as like, oh, it's a weakness of the candidate. But I think those turned out to be his strengths. Um, I think for, for a large amount of people, you know, this, the truth, some sort of allegiance to truth, some sort of allegiance to fact, uh, allegiance to expertise got us here, you know? And if we want freedom, if we want to break free, if we want to create a new, uh, a, a better situation, then, then, then let's jettison all that, you know? Let's just embrace the lies, <laughs> you know? Let's construct our own uh, fiction and, and call that reality. And, and because of course, so much more is possible uh, when you lie, you can, you can call into question the results of a fair election and say it was rigged, you know, and that's very, very powerful. Um, I think to any analogies, uh, to Nazi Germany, um, you know, when, when, when the, the Germans, uh, even, even German soldiers, people high up in the German commanders that we, we didn't know. And then at Nuremberg and different cities, they had you not know because the media was uh, fake news, you know, it was propaganda, the, the foreign media, how could we trust the foreign media? So when you, when you're willing to, you know, call call reality fake. Um, like anything becomes possible, you know. Um, and what's what's terrifying is that it seems that a lot of people are uh, are tempted by that. You know, that's an attractive attractive timeline for them. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think this particular moment in which people get their news from all kinds of places, you know. Um, so a lot of people get their news; they never turn on television. It's all Facebook and 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 social media and Twitter and the internet and so forth. They don't go to; they don't look at television anymore, or it's only one station. 
it's only Fox News or it's only MSNBC uh, and whatever else is going on that you know, they don't get their news from. So when you have so many segments of the population that are getting their news and they're, as you're saying, they're versions of reality, you know, because the news is not an objective thing. That is the people who broadcast the news, they're making very subjective judgments about what they cover. So we're gonna do five minutes of this, we're gonna do two minutes of that, and we're gonna do three minutes of that and, and so forth. That's, those are judgments to cover certain things and not to cover other things. So the idea of the news is a judgment, often, often a political judgment in regard to what we cover and what the station thinks of as the news. So I think that that allows, um, uh, more easily allows what you just said, but for people to sort of have a smorgasbord of what reality is. I'll take a little of this and a little of that, and I'll watch a little of this, and I'll post a little of that on social media, and I'll follow this person, but not this person. So uh, people are putting together you know, what is real and, and what is reality and what sources are credible and what sources are not credible. So when everyone has that sort of freedom to do that, of course, you're going to get a very fragmented national sense of what's real or, 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 or what's legitimate uh, when people have the power to sort of do this on their own. I think also that there is a meta picture to this. Uh, I think that Trump makes sense against again the uh, the backlash of what people believed Obama was about. This sort of demographically changing America. Uh, this America that some people just think is just not traditional America enough. Um, uh, an America in which a black guy can become president, uh, an America in which a black woman can become vice president, um, and you know, an, an America that you know has a pretty large immigrant population. Um, and, and so, Trump is a reaction to that. He's a very self-conscious reaction to that. You know, when he says build the wall uh, and start mass deportations and putting kids in cages and that sort of thing, he's speaking in a in a and not even in a subtle way. He's speaking in a very, I think, explicit way about race and what the country is becoming demographically. When he calls countries in Africa s-hole countries and, and says, you know, why are we letting people in from those countries? We should let more people in from Norway. Well, that's not a subtle way of saying we need to let more white folks in this country from Norway, which is like 95% white or something like that, as opposed to letting people in from Africa or Asia and so forth. So, so I, I think that he gets a pass on a lot of the other stuff. And some of the stuff is just really crazy stuff because people take him, there's a saying uh, during um, the, the campaign 2016 that people on the left, the Democrats take Trump literally, but they don't take him seriously. So when he says he's gonna build the wall and Mexicans are gonna pay for it and so forth, they took it literally. Although they didn't take it seriously, nobody believed that Mexico was going to pay for the wall. But they they went after him, saying, "Look, he's you know he's a racist, and he's you know he's saying this about Mexico, and you know what are we going to do about it?" His own supporters, however, and I think this is absolutely true, people said that they don't take him literally, but they take him seriously. Well, maybe Mexico won't buy pay for the wall. Okay, maybe we won't even get the whole wall. But the gist of it is that we need to keep these folks out of the country and he's down for that trump whether it's a paying for a wall or you know some kind of other policy we take him seriously that he's trying to keep these brown folks from mexico from coming here we take that seriously even however he manages to do it you know whether we can take the wall this that specific thing seriously you know the sentiment behind it we take seriously yeah uh so i i think that um 
one, the, one of the major ways of understanding his enduring appeal on the right is to understand this sort of meta picture that you know he wants to slow the demographic change in this country um, and you know get back to this traditional America, whatever that looks like, whether it's 1950s or whatever, and, and which it was no question about who ran the country and who was in a privileged position in the country and so forth. Um, even if we have to turn back the clock, and even if we have to do damage to American institutions, even if we have to have an insurrection. You know, um, you know, willing to do that if we, you know, if it means uh, halting the sort of demographic change that's going on in this country uh, that a lot of folks on the right uh, think is problematic, and he's their man for for doing so. Even if you don't take him literally about how he's going to get it done, you take him seriously in regard to the sentiment that this needs to be done. Yeah, I remember a, a headline uh, in the Atlantic shortly after the election. Uh, where, where Trump is the first white president. Um, and I think that's that's really astute. And and regarding, yeah, I, I think everything, not everything, but so much of, of his rhetoric and what he does is about stemming demographic change. And, and the larger picture is not just, to the extent that you can't stem demographic change, you wanna stem democratic institutions. You wanna stem democracy because de demographic change means, uh, you know, uh, an empowering of, of the majority or an empowering of... Um, uh, of empowering minorities in, in a majority minority country, for example, um, and and to to prevent that that change, you have to sabotage, you have to uh, really destroy uh, democracy. Um, and I think, yeah, that's that's very much what we've uh, what what the insurrection, for example, was about, and what a lot of Trump's presidency was about. I think that that's you put your finger on my own personal concern as an American about my country. Um, over the next, I'll, I'll, ideally we'll be alive long enough uh, to, to see what's gonna happen over the next two or three decades. But you, have put, you put your, your finger right on my concern. That is, is the fear of more or less multicultural pluralism, which is what you're talking about. That is a majority minority country, uh, a democratic multicultural, democratic small d, multicultural pluralism. Is the fear of that, great enough a fear um, among enough people to overturn the whole experiment in democratic governance, small d democratic governance in this country. Is, is the fear of this sort of multicultural majority uh, coming into being and what that means for democracy in America and power relations and so forth between groups. Is that fear a, a, an ingrained enough fear uh, and a widespread enough fear that we'll have a large number or critical mass of our fellow countrymen and countrywomen to take up arms or to be okay with the destruction of, of, of institutions, starting with the capital, uh, in the name of reserving for themselves some sort of privilege, some sort of notion of yesteryear's uh, arrangements. Um, I don't know the questions, the answer to that. I hope I'm, I'm optimistic. I'd like to say that, you know, um, the forces that would want to see an overturning of the entire table are not enough in number, uh, in commitment uh, to, to do that, but I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced of that yeah. I'm, yet. I, I, I'm optimistic uh, that uh, 
good people uh, across the board will um, come together and uh, uh, fix whatever need, needs to be fixed. Now, a lot of things that need to be fixed about our our electoral system and so forth, and and our class system and and inequalities of all sorts and and, and so forth. There's a lot that needs to be fixed. Um, I don't think that a dictatorship is, you know, or, or an authoritarian setup is going to fix it. Um, and I, I don't think that uh, whoever the next strong man that comes after Trump, there'll be others, uh, and says, I alone can fix it. You know, just give me the power, give me the reins and so forth. These, these, the world is packed with these guys, these kinds of guys, whether it's Putin, whether, whether it's Bolsonaro in, in Brazil and so forth. So these guys are a dime a dozen. And uh, in 20th century and well, world history. Um, so whoever comes after Trump, uh, I'm hoping that we've turned the corner enough that that stuff doesn't sell as well. But I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not yeah. sure. Uh, again, that, that's my concern that there, there's a critical mass of, of folks out there who just assume see the world burn and the country burn uh, than to abide by um, letting democracy play itself out. Yeah. And I, I'm 100% on the same page. And I've been thinking a lot about these questions of democracy recently and the, the ways in which democracy is obviously fragile and, and hard because it relies on regular people, you know, being alarmed or being informed or seeing it as something to preserve. And, you know, regular people, you know, everyone has their own sort of bubble of people that they know. So in my little bubble of people that I know, you know, there's so many people who just, worried about their life and worried about and, and and they don't know you know they're not they're not they don't understand necessarily um all the all the details of you know uh, any any particular election or, or the, the the stakes of a supreme court seat you know whatever that might be and um and uh it's scary it's scary because it's it's uh it's it's fragile I guess, and and you sort of see the fragility when, when you talk to you know the average when you talk to any 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 voters. I guess um, it's just it's a fragile system. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you only see that when it's under duress. Yeah, I, I think if you ask, you know, if you'd asked me ten years ago, if you asked me ask me five years ago, would thousands of my fellow countrymen go to the Capitol and break into place? and look to hang the vice president of the United States and build a gallows <laughs> to hang him with. Uh, and the president of the United States would egg it on. No, I, I didn't think it could happen here. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's the exact, Amakai, I think that that's the exact problem. That is, maybe we Americans are too smug. Uh, and we don't, you know, we, this thing has lasted a long time. This, this, this experiment in American constitutionalism and democracy has lasted since the 18th century. Uh, it's had some bumps and ups and downs, but for the most part, it's, it's held, held and democracy has expanded, it's embraced more and more people over the last couple of centuries. So I think that we have been lulled into a sense that this thing is too durable uh, and too institutionalized and too ingrained. But you're exactly right. If you look at democracy in every other part of the world, it's often fleeting, it's incomplete, it's fragile, it needs just a little nudge to fall off, fall off a cliff uh, or to be broken. Uh, and I think that that's the lesson of the last five years, uh, the fragility. Uh, there are a lot of blind spots in our system. Um, you know, just looking at the current drama, you know, you get 
the Congress can't get people to come in by way of subpoena to even talk about an insurrection that they may have helped inspire. You know, that's tied up in the courts. Um, so there's a lot of, lot of blind spots just in regard to investigating an attempt to overthrow a constitutional system. We can't even get a good investigation of that. Um, or investigating is like pulling teeth just to get people to come and talk to the, the Congress. So I, yeah, I think that's the big lesson that this thing, this American exceptionalism thing, we're maybe not all that exceptional um, yeah. in regard to what can happen here. You know, if it can happen, you know, in, in, in advanced countries around the world, you mentioned the, the German instance, you know, who thought that, you know, Germany would try to exterminate its Jewish population? Maybe Russia, right? Authoritarian Russia, maybe the czars would do something with all the programs. Who thought a, an advanced country like Germany would, would do what it did? Yeah. But it happened there. Yeah. Um, so... I, I think that that's the lesson of the last five years. Um, this is a fragile thing. It, it has a lot of blind spots in it. There are a lot of people who don't believe in it. Um, and will uh, you know, allow for a leader to emerge who bends all the rules because you know, uh, they don't think that the system itself is one above reproach. Um, so yeah, yeah. again, you, you put your finger on my, my own concerns. Yeah, um, we're basically getting to the end here. It's been a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful conversation, which I really appreciate and I really, really have enjoyed. Um, it seems like we're probably not going to end on uh, such a hopeful note, um, but that's okay. I guess the last, the last thought I just maybe um, have been thinking about based on this conversation is that it's tempting to see Trump as such a uh, a break, such a, a nom anomalous character, and of course, in many ways he is. Um, but but you know one of the, one of the things that comes across in the book is is sort of the the continuities you know from from the Obama years and so you know Justice Scalia uh, is someone who uh, it, it has such a in, in my world you know such a positive reputation you know someone um, he was friends with, with Bader Ginsburg apparently according to news reports um, and people like who consider that I know consider themselves moderates saw him as like such an eloquent funny religious guy um, and in uh, his uh, you know, Shelby versus Holder. Uh, Supreme Court decision, um, he, he, you know, was part of the vote that gutted the, the Civil Rights Act, uh, or the, the Voting Rights, the part of the, the Voting Rights Act, um, which was instrumental in, in preventing um, voter suppression. And it's that decision, which you could trace the line to, you know, voter suppression tactics that uh, may have swung uh, swing states in the direction of Trump. Um, and, and, and those are the, the same exact techniques uh, you know, after Justice uh, Scalia died, uh, you know, the Republicans didn't refuse to, to fill the seat uh, of the Supreme Court. Um, all these all these things. So there's there is this continuity. Um, it's not it's not coming out of nowhere. There is this history uh, in recent history in the past, you know, 10, five, five years, 10 years of this kind of uh, repression uh, of, of democracy. Um, and, and so that, that that's the fight that we're still seeing uh, persist today. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, uh, and that's it's, it's even beyond the last five to 10 years. Uh, we've seen, we saw some of that during the 60s, the Republican Party trying to discourage Black voters in urban areas in particular um, from voting in the 80s too. And actually there was a consent dec decree uh, that the Republicans had to uh, abide by that said that, you, you know, you can't, you know, put 
billboards in black communities about you know discouraging people to vote. You can't use some of these tactics to to suppress the vote, um, and that was lifted in recent years. But the big thing, as you mentioned, uh, Amakai, was the uh, gutting of the voting rights bill in 2013 by the Supreme Court and the protections that it allowed, so that states couldn't just you know state legislatures couldn't just up and say, okay, we're gonna we're going to make it harder for people to vote because we're going to close down the DMVs and, you know, where people get licenses and we're going to force people to have photo IDs, uh, but make it harder for them to get photo IDs because we're not going to fund the DMV or um, we're going to do all these other things that we're seeing today and, and make it harder for people to cast ballots, ballots remotely or through the mails. Uh, we're going to take up the ballot collection boxes and, and you know, there's some some places talking about having a citizenship test, you have to prove you're a citizen, and that goes even beyond just, just showing up with a driver's license. Uh, so uh, yeah, the, the doors open by the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. And, that, and at one time, the Voting Rights Act, it has to be approved every 25 years. So at one time, that was just, they just did it. And the Republicans and Democrats just sort of did it. You know, uh, they, would, they, would, they would vote and, and support the, the renewal of the act. And, but by the time we get to the the uh, Holder uh, or the Shelby County versus Holder decision in 2013, it's very partisan. And as it is now, uh, voting rights, voting policy, um, and so forth is very, uh, very partisan. So you have states that are run by Republicans that make it hard to vote, uh, and states run by Democrats that are, uh, if they're doing anything on voting rights, they're trying to make it easier to vote. And that goes back to what we were saying before, this sort of fear of a multicultural, democratic, small d pluralism, uh, that if you let democracy just play it out, you're going to have a situation in which Black voters and brown voters and people of color have an increasing say in the national conversation and the state and local conversations when it comes to voting and balloting uh, over time. And there's a genuine fear uh, of what that means, um, especially coming from the Republican Party. Uh, so all of what you, what you touched on earlier in regard to casting aspersions on the elections that one doesn't win. You know, my side must win, right? And if my side didn't win, then it was rigged. It was, you know, you had dead people voting or people voted several times and, this, and the system is fraudulent, which is as the narrative that comes out of the 2020 election from Trump is. If I don't win, if my side doesn't win, then it must be that the system is messed up. And let's fix the system by making it even harder for voters to vote, especially voters that, you know, um, come from dem different demographic groups urban voters, uh, poor people uh, who vote and tend to, for the most part, vote for Democrats and so forth. We'll make it harder. And that's how we improve the system. Uh, even though we don't have any evidence to show that, that uh, there's all this fraud, we're gonna still, just in case there is any fraud, we're gonna, we're gonna make it harder for people to vote. And I, which I think even more erodes the faith of people in the system. So if you have a system in which people on all sides of spectrum think the system is fraudulent that historically has led to a certain kind of outcome uh, for democracies when you have a critical mass of people who think it doesn't work uh, and then someone raises a hand and says I alone can fix it. Uh, it you know that that's a movie we, a movie we've seen before yeah 
is not the most hopeful note to end on, but I think that's okay. I think it's people, we should be realistic. And if people are alarmed, then there's, there's times when it's okay to be alarmed. Um, Dr. Clegg, uh, this has been so, so great. So wonderful. Uh, I, your, your book was, was a wonderful, uh, read or listening experience as the case might be in my, my case. And, um, I'm really grateful, uh, for, for you sharing your time with me today. Uh, is there anything you want to just, uh, end off with, um, people can find you maybe, or, or find the book or anything. Sure. Sure. The book, um, the Black President, Hope and Fury in the Age of Obama. It's available anywhere. Uh, books are sold. Amazon's, of course, a good place to get it. You can get it straight from the publisher, uh, Johns Hopkins University Press. Uh, their website is press.jhu.edu. Um, and again, you know, any other place that you buy books, they can order it for, for you and, and so forth if it's not in stock. Uh, so yeah, thank you for your time and your great questions. Again, I, 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 you know, sometimes, you know, these are complicated things and sometimes there's not a happy ending to things. And again, we, we, we don't know what the ending is, but, but thanks for, uh, unpacking with me some of the things that, uh, the book is about and certainly some of the things that are going on now in our, uh, political culture that we all should be concerned about.